0: Welcome to Star Talk All Stars. It's so great to see everyone here. We're here live from the Now Here This Festival in New York City. Woo!
1: Yeah! Awesome.
0: I'll be your host today, I'm Jan Levin, I'm a professor of physics and astronomy at Barnard College in Columbia University, and also director of sciences at Pioneer Works in Brooklyn. Those two places are very far from each other by New York City standards. Yeah. Uh, joining me today, we're gonna to be talking about theoretical physics, is my co-host, all-star veteran Chuck Nice, woo! Yeah! And I can tell you, he is you know. very nice.
1: Yeah. Whenever uh, you know, whenever we have to speak about theoretical physics, uh, astrophysics, we say, "Let's get a Chuck Nice, please."
0: <laughs> We've had some good talks about astrophysics. Yes, absolutely. And also joining us to help us pick through this very vast topic is a good friend of mine, the astrophysicist David Spergel. Welcome, David. <laughs> David is a professor of astronomy from Princeton University and also the founding director of an amazing new institute, the Center for Computational Astrophysics. So we're very excited to have nice. David here. Thanks for coming. David also uh, is a person with whom I wrote my first uh, astrophysics paper. It's true. <laughs> yeah, and was um, a mentor of Neil deGrasse Tyson's when he yes. was a postdoc, <laughs> and a mentor to like
1: 35 other. Yeah. Astrophysicist oh, as least. well, oh, at man. least right.
0: David has has a has quite a prolific uh, history with yeah. producing great scientists. So. But the
1: best thing yeah. is the fact that, in spite of being a very handsome man, <laughs> David, as an astrophysicist, could easily be a Bond villain. <laughs> Look at him. <laughs> I'm just waiting for him at any second to spontaneously say, I expect you to die, Mr. Bond.
0: We should have given I, him some wings. So um, I wanted to start this with just a, a little bit of, of identifying what we mean first by theoretical physics before we get started. Why don't we just say physics? Why don't we just say we're going to talk about physics in general? Why theoretical? Why do we have to attach that to it?
2: Well... I divide physics or how we do physics into two pieces, experiment or observation, where we go out and see how things work, and theory, where we construct models to understand how things work. And I actually swing both ways. Nice. Um,
0: We're only going to use that statement, (laughs) just with no other context, when we advertise this episode.
1: Theoretical astrophysics, the sexiest physics of
0: all. (laughs) Swings both ways, says David Sperger.
2: So as a theorist, we try to create models and theories to understand the phenomenon we see. So when uh, Galileo sat under that tree, actually I guess Newton sat under the tree, Mm -hmm. and had the apple fall, he was an observer, when Galileo went to the Uh, the Leaning Tower of Pisa, supposedly, and dropped two rocks of different size and watched how they fall. He was being an experimentalist. Mm -hmm. But as a theorist, Galileo and Newton built mathematical models of how the universe worked. One of the things I think a lot of people find challenging about physics, particularly theoretical physics, is the language of theoretical physics as mathematics. And it is That's one the, of the that I love. <laughs> you know, it, it, one of the most mysterious and strangest things about the universe mm-hmm. is something that the late Eugene Wigner one of the great physicists of the 20th century called the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics. Mm-hmm. Um, we can write down relatively simple equations. Force equals mass times acceleration. Uh, even the equations of general relativity are fundamentally pretty simple when you write them down properly. And these simple equations describe phenomenon all across the universe. The universe could be a lot more complex. The math that, you know, we just came out of the trees a million years ago, right? We've just been doing this agriculture thing for like 10,000 years. Maybe we've been doing math since you know, 8,000, 10,000 years. Somehow, we are able, with our math, to construct models that explain a lot of the physics, a lot of the stuff we see going on in our universe. And this, to me, is just unbelievable. I don't know why the universe is so simple.
1: So do you uh, subscribe to the uh, saying that the language of the universe is mathematics? Absolutely. Oh,
0: absolutely. So, I mean, even black holes were discovered on pen and paper, decades before they were even thought to be plausibly real, where, where it was considered just, oh, this is a mathematical oddity. Nature will not permit this to happen. And there is something interesting, that nature seems to explore all the mathematical possibilities uh, in some sense, and that there, it might be the case that nature tries on everything that can be done mathematically is, is done maybe somewhere in the multiverse. <laughs> yeah, I
2: mean, with black holes, even Einstein didn't believe them. So when Carl Schwarzschild came up with the black hole solution, Einstein said, well, he's a brilliant mathematician, but this isn't sensible physics.
3: Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah.
2: yeah. Hmm. Einstein, what an <laughs> idiot.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> you Fat know, guy.
0: Do you know that he said about himself, when I was a student, I was no Einstein? <laughs>
1: That's a great quote. <laughs> So uh, when it comes to theoretical, which by the way, uh, both of these guys are theoretical astrophysicists. Don't let uh, Jana sell herself short as well. Um, so when you guys are modeling, and you're coming up uh, you know, with, you know, I've seen some of these equations as they're written out. How, how do we go from the blackboard okay, and the equation to the picture? Or, you know, I'll I'll call it the human metaphor. That's really
0: not that? that easy. I mean, I'll definitely let David address this, but it is interesting that, again, just to use the black hole analogy, that for decades people also couldn't interpret the solution. They really struggled. There's this mathematical solution, it was done in less than a year after Einstein writes down the general theory of relativity, so that's fast, but decades it takes of people to try to interpret what does it mean that time dilates as you approach the event horizon of the black hole? What happens inside? That that was hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I find I actually work in both directions. So there are times when... Well, you do go both ways. Right. (laughs) I have a physical picture in my mind of what's going on. So, you know, one of the things both Janet and I worked on... Oh, is the topology of the universe? What shape the universe has? Mm-hmm. And for some of that work, I began with a picture and then figured out, actually, learned the mathematics I needed to know to be able to describe the picture in my mind. So sometimes you work that way, and sometimes you let the math guide you, right? You start with what, you know, I want to combine. This piece of physics I understand, and this piece of physics I understand and you take the equations, and the equations guide you to the answer.
0: You follow the chalk on the blackboard to
2: where it takes you. And sometimes you follow the chalk together. I mean, I think a notion that a lot of people have of theoretical physicists is we sit in our rooms quietly and work on pen and paper, which we do sometimes. But there's also this... You've clearly never been drinking with Jan 11. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, but hey, a- don't give me a reputation.
2: <laughs> but there's also this time where you're up at the blackboard, right? And it's a conversation, and I think it's an experience more like jazz than anything else.
0: Yeah. So this is interesting. We... we I've been trying to tell people that scientists don't stand at that chalkboard debating. That would be absolutely futile. You stand at the chalkboard sharing your intuition and your argument. And if the other person's argument is better, you relent as quickly as possible Mm. because you want to immediately move on. It's not that winning some debate is what you're trying to do. You're trying to make a discovery. And that's where the other person feeding off of the other intuition and the other idea is just, if you're open to it, you both spiral much faster and much you further. And my
1: wife and I were theoretical astrophysicists.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, sp- <laughs> speaking of your wife, does she have a question for us? <laughs> do, we, we, do we have our cosmic queries? I was thinking we can open this up to some questions. Are we doing this live?
1: Yeah, we should. I think we are. We're actually, you know, what we normally do for those of you who are fans of the show when we do cosmic queries, what we normally do is we solicit them from uh, the internet, and we have people who uh, reach out to us via whatever social media outlet there is, and they give us their question. But since we have all of you here, and you actually came to a live podcast about theoretical astrophysics. <laughs> We're pretty sure you guys have some questions.
0: <laughs> I hope you're not here expecting the drag con. That's next door.
1: <laughs> That's why I can't. Um, but yeah, so if you have a question, you know, uh, instead of us soliciting questions from Facebook and Twitter and otherwise, uh, just step Grab up to the mic. microphone and, um, and these guys will answer them.
3: Yeah. Hi, I'm Jamie from Philly. Uh, I have, like, an astrobiology question, if that's okay. Uh, they talk about, like, this special moment on Earth a few billion years ago, like, with endosymbiosis, because you've got, like, two domains of life and only two, archaea and bacteria. They come together to make eukaryotes, but it had to transverse, like, the energetic canyon or whatever mm-hmm. they call it. So is it possible that that's an answer to the Fermi paradox, where we don't see life because it's just so, so really. hard and so improbable that this mm-hmm. one thing happened, question. like, once in these four and odd billion years?
0: I think it's a great question. We, we talked about this recently at an event we did at Pioneer Works. David, do you want to try this?
2: Yeah, so first just a little background, right? So the Fermi paradox is we look out and we, now, we see billions of stars in our galaxy. We now know, we didn't know this at the time of Fermi, that most stars have planets. So there are billions of planets. There are very likely... Tens of millions or hundreds of millions of Earth-like planets in our galaxy. And that suggests there ought to be lots of other places that have life. Um, And the Fermi paradox is, if there's life out there, why haven't we seen them? And uh, there are a number of many possible resolutions of the Fermi paradox. One resolution has always been, life is rare. And we do not know, we know it's pretty easy to make amino acids. We see amino acids in space. To go from amino acids to the first simplest cell is a really hard step. We don't know how to make that step. There are a lot of biologists working on that. A lot of people have felt that the answer to the Fermi paradox might be that that's such a hard step. Mm -hmm. One of the things that people now realize, and they think that the way uh, you made the first, you carry out cell, the kind of more complex cell that makes up us, is when you brought together and merged two cells, and instead of having one eat the other, which is what usually happens, mm-hmm. they formed a single more advanced life form. And that evolved to become all, all of complex life.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So that seems like a pretty rare event, so that could be the bottom.
0: What was stunning was that single-celled organisms just were in stasis that way for billions of years. years. Yeah, I mean, and it was a long time, it's over a billion years. And then uh, this single event seems to have triggered this radiation of sudden complex organisms. And I think you mentioned it has to do with suddenly it found an energetically favorable relationship. And that was very surprising.
1: Yeah, so... So, uh, uh, I'm, I'm just curious, okay, because when I hear this, okay, I, what I think immediately is about the life that is already here. Now, this may be uh, the fact that it is already here, but one thing about life is it finds a way. <laughs> OK, it's like it always finds a way. And I don't care what it is. It's like, you know, uh, uh, you, you destroy an ecosystem and out of that destruction arises another ecosystem. So is it possible that life isn't as hard as we think? But going back to what we talked about earlier, the universe is big. Yeah, It's just wow. so big That maybe it's happening all the time, and we just, and maybe it's happened in places that we've already seen, but it happened so long ago. You understand what I'm saying? So what about that?
2: I don't know if life always finds a way. Okay. And the example I think of is, I ask the question, why aren't the clouds green? Right? Clouds are filled with water. Okay. Okay. If I was a plant, you know, just go to a jungle. You want to be as high as you can. Why hasn't something evolved yet? That lives up in the clouds, that uses photosynthesis. I understand what you're saying there. So it takes, you know, life, it sometimes takes a big step to fill that niche. Okay. So as as Janice said, like, it took a billion years for complex life to happen. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes there's these bottlenecks and it takes a long time to jump over that bottleneck. And you know, so I think you know, the thing you're talking about, it could be we're limited by a bottleneck. Um, we don't know. I mean, there's also the possibility of alternative routes. Uh, you know, One of the things that comes to mind is like, what if we didn't have this event? Could something more advanced happen? Well, there was things going on. So we're the consolation prize? Well, so if you look at, um, you have these bacterial mats, where instead where they're actually we all have them, they're on our teeth. That's why you have to brush your teeth, because all the bacteria in your mouth form a mat overnight. And that's that you know, that feeling on your teeth in the morning. That's like a pretty complex structure. I'm the bacteria right are working together. You're wiping them out with your toothbrush. Um and every day. That's they because try again. their
1: cavity creeps. <laughs> right.
2: But that's a different way to advance life. Is instead of having um, more complex cells, another route, and it's not the route we took on Earth, but maybe on some other planet that happens, is you have simple cells work cooperatively to make more complex systems.
1: Hmm. So could those simple cells work cooperatively to create a collective consciousness within that complex system? Because that's the real deal that makes us what we are.
0: I mean, it's unclear. Why not? It could be that ants do have a collective consciousness. I mean, that is something that's that is pursued true. even with life forms that we can study that yeah. behave socially. That's a
1: very good point, though. because it I might w- be
0: like cells in a brain, exactly. in a larger brain.
1: Yeah. I just saw a great thing where uh, uh, a colony of fire ants was floating uh, somewhere in Houston. and and It was amazing, and that's because collectively what they do is get together, and they decide, all right, Mm -hmm. you guys on the bottom, see you later, but you're going to allow us to live, and the guys on the bottom go, all right, that's what we got to do, let's do it. (laughs) And I'm just like, those dudes are awesome, but I want to be
2: on top. (laughs) Well, we even... As humans, a lot of the things we now do that are most sophisticated, we do collectively. I mean, society, in a way, is something we create that's more than just the individual. Cool.
0: Well, maybe you and I are just neurons in a larger brain, and we don't realize that collectively there's some thought going on in the room, and we're no more aware of it than one of our brain cells is aware of.
1: Oh my God! You got to make that your next novel. That's awesome.
0: <laughs> and then.
1: <laughs> what an awesome idea! A hero comes in. Exactly. I want to be that one like free radical neuron that just is screwing up everything. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
3: Hi, uh, my name is Saj, I'm um, from New York. Uh, I guess it's more a geophysics question, but um, with respect to, like, if we measure altitude, we always say with respect to sea level. But, I mean, that's kind of vague. I mean, are they talking oceans? They average the oceans and so forth? Like, how do you know what that, like, your zero point is? Also, with respect to climate change, I mean, the sea level is going up. Does that mean you have to redo all of your measurements? Like, I mean, like, <laughs>
0: Do we have an international standard for sea level the way yes. we do for time okay, zero? So
3: this is
2: something where I'm not at all expert, so I'm just trying to wing it off of what I remember. Um, <laughs> From like grade school.
0: That's what he's reaching so back to.
2: The, um, if you view the Earth as a spinning liquid, right, spinning, right, uh, there's an equilibrium for a spinning surface, right? So the Earth actually bulges out a bit more near the equator less near the poles, and that surface, the surface of this, what's called the geode of that spinning surface, is what we define as sea level. Oh. We define relative to that height. So that's for, you know, the... That's
0: a pretty good memory, David. Yeah. So that's there's a good. mountain...
2: I think he knew it all along, but he's just like, let me see he's if he's I can remember off, this.
0: He has a cheat sheet on his wrist. There's he's a, reading a mountain
2: it in Ecuador whose name I forget that actually sticks out the furthest from the center of the Earth because the Earth bulges out the most there. Um, But we don't talk about it as being the highest mountain, that's Mount Everest, but we care about the distance from this geode. So that's that's the first question.
0: And the second question was about climate change.
2: It's happening. (laughs) It's happening. (laughs) Nice. I mean, and, you know, you look at these hurricanes we're having, and climate change isn't causing hurricanes, right? We've had hurricanes before. What climate change is doing is it's making the hurricanes that are occurring more powerful, more destructive. And, you know, climate change... And, and giving them
1: worse names, yeah. like Irma. Because anybody knows, first of all, you, you have never gone out with an Irma and had a good time. <laughs> You knew that hurricane was going to be trouble. <laughs> yeah, and I just,
0: think there's an Irma in the audience. You are, you are in trouble. <laughs> uh, Irma, if
1: you're here, I stand by what I said. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody in this room knows I'm right. Yeah,
2: and, <laughs> you know, and this is something, as someone who's looked at atmospheres and other planets and thought about some of those things, so I'm not a climatologist, but it's easy to go with some background and look at what they're doing. We one of the basic things we understand is you put carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, you increase the amount that's there, it's a greenhouse gas, the planet will get hotter. We've been putting more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. You can tell from the radioactive date composition of things, what the that it's anthropomorphic. It's you stuff. We're burning coal, we're putting it in the atmosphere, it's making the planet hotter. You know. It's it's happening, and we're doing it, and personally, I just don't get why the, there are a lot of politicians who won't listen to scientists. They believe us about the eclipse.
0: I know, this is what I was going to say. I was like, how are they going to explain away the sudden disappearance of the sun and its reappearance? Well,
2: I
1: can guarantee you this. If there was a way to make trillions of dollars on... Explaining away the disappearance of the sun, they would do it in a heartbeat.
0: And that is a good point. Yeah,
1: that's, no question. that's what it's about. The real
0: motivation. And is there
1: anybody in this room who is either a doubter of human caused climate instability? Is there anybody here? Uh, anyone? Woo! <laughs> <laughs> By the way, that was awesome, because nobody who is a climate denier is that enthusiastic about <laughs> I would like to meet a climate denier who's like, yeah! <laughs> it's a hoax! Hey, like, and you never see that. So. They,
2: they just nominated one to run NASA. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh my God, uh, you're right. Uh, okay.
0: okay.
1: You yeah. can't
2: make this stuff
1: you up. You can't make it up. <laughs>
3: Hello, my name is Gary from Queens, New York. Uh, my question is actually kind of personal from NASA. I fell in love with NASA ever since Alan Shepard's first flight, reading up on it. Those 15 minutes of like how technology, how we went beyond that to the hardest part of getting outside of Earth. And on a personal note, I want to ask you in learning astrophysics, what was the hardest thing for you to learn to overcome that? I know that's not that's more personal, but wow.
0: It's nice because we we are actually real people, <laughs> physicists.
3: Yeah. So what? We,
0: we didn't come out of the womb with like physicists. Like we had to find it.
2: For me, the hardest course and the hardest thing was actually my freshman physics class. Okay. And that was because you know, so I went. I grew up on Long Island. I went to a good suburban high school in Long Island. I was, like, a good physics and math student in my high school. And then I went to Princeton as an undergraduate. And, you know, I was, like, a good student, and I was, like, on the math team. But I got to my class, and there were all these kids who were from Stuyvesant and Bronx side who were, like, won the national competition. And I had placed into a class that was... Above my head. And I was just, you know, I just really struggled that first year. Um, and it was just, you know, a lot of it. I mean, we sort of start out talking about the effectiveness of math. Learning math is like learning a new language. And I didn't have the language yet. Mm. And so struggling to get that language was, for me, the hardest step.
0: Um, I... Um, think Well, I, I didn't identify as a scientist for a long time, so I was in college, um, I had, I, I never finished high school, it's not a very interesting story, but so I never had physics or even calculus when I started college, and um, I uh, was a philosophy major, I was interested in art and philosophy, and um, halfway through, really, I discovered physics, It was a very strange experience for me. I remember at one point, I had to take all of these quantitative classes just to get my degree, right? So I had to take calculus and and like organic chemistry or something like that. And I remember somebody saying to me, you know, have you ever considered physics? And I was offended. (laughs) I thought physicists build bombs, you know, I don't do. And they memorize things, I don't do. That's not creative. Mm -hmm. And um, I discovered somewhere along the way what math was, what physics was, and how phenomenally creative the field is. Like you can all know the same math, and one person figures out the Rubik's cube trick. Do you know what I mean? There's this, somebody finds some stunning variation on exactly that mathematics, and it is like a language. Somebody writes a beautiful sentence. We all speak the same language, and um, and I just totally. It was like the world cracked open for me. I just. It was like a sudden revelation, to be honest. And I made a very rapid and radical change into physics and astronomy. And, and like David, suddenly had this massive catch-up in terms of the mathematics. And I think one of the reasons why I went into such mathematical field was because I was overcompensating because I didn't know anything and everyone around me had been doing this since they were kids, really. And so I think I overcompensated by learning a lot more math than I understood was even required at the base level. And so that was very challenging to walk into a classroom of kids who were all, you know, at Barnard and Columbia studying math since they were, you know, first... Studying in anything it was hard
3: it was
1: fun, and for, it was for me it, for yeah. me, it came easily It just <laughs> i got to be honest, it was very natural. Uh, you know I breezed right through every class, uh, uh, kicked the asses of all the Harvard kids, like please yeah <laughs>
3: the, thank you so much it's just uh, when it comes I love physics. And, and are you are you pursuing uh, uh, I know I just have a love for NASA uh, ever <laughs> since I read. Um, um um oh boy, I can't even think of it um uh, the flight controller I forgot his name already. No, not Alan Shepard. he was the first he was the he wrote a book uh called a uh, Failure is not an Option and yeah. ever since I read that book, I was just fascinated staring at the stars but like when it comes to like, Astrophysics, it just yeah. seems yeah. like a mountain too hard to climb. Because my brain just feels like numbers numb, and then, you know. So.
0: I think climbing a mountain is a good analogy. Yeah. And that's also, I think, why scientists have to share the view from the summit, because not everyone can make that climb. Yeah. I mean, not that not everyone's capable, not everyone's going to make that climb. And so we have to be able to share the view.
2: But one of the interesting things about NASA projects, so I've been involved with a couple big space missions, and I'm working on one now, is it's like being part of a, a symphony, or maybe even better yet, a film production, where you know when you see a movie, you see you know the actors. There's a cinematographer, there's a director, but you get to the end of the movie, right? There's that long. Some of you may walk out, but some of you may stay, right? There's that long list of names of all the people that make it happen, and you know when you've got a NASA mission. There's a really a long list of names. Some people are the astrophysicists, or maybe it depends if it's a human product, The astronauts. Some are the aerospace engineers. But it's actually something where you know there are people. Uh, more missions fail because they don't have good financial monitoring, right? So it's like the set of there's a huge range of skills. There's the artists who do the scientific communication um, that are part of the story. So. Um, with, if you're interested in working with NASA, there's this really wide range of talents that are needed to make NASA and it work. So it, it's good to keep that in mind.
3: Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Hi, Carol from the Bronx. Um, I have a kind
1: of a double question. Um, what are the chances that we,
0: were, that we will see a working EM drive? And how would that change our understanding of physics? Do you mean like a warp drive? Yes. Um, hmm, that's tough. I know how to do warp drive on paper. Um, in, in general relativity, you can find this trick. Um, so we discussed we discuss the universe expanding. If the universe can expand, it can also contract it just requires very peculiar constraints on whatever form of energy is doing the either expansion or contraction. So we know that there's this form of energy in the universe which makes up about three quarters of all the energy budget in the cosmos, and that's given this proxy name, dark energy, because we don't know what it is. And it's driving the universe not only to expand, but to expand at an accelerated rate. The expansion's getting faster and faster. Um, if I were to propose another hypothetical form of energy, one that we actually haven't observed yet, but, you know, to make it up, like dark energy is basically made up to do what we want it to do. And then we give it this name because we don't know what it is. Um, similarly, I know exactly how to make up an energy in general relativity to pull space closer to me. Then I could just step across. And then I can use dark energy to push me back out again. And that would give me faster than speed of light um, travel. I wouldn't actually be traveling faster than the speed of light if I were shine a flashlight and bring it with me it would go faster than i'm going but it would go faster than the speed of light in the ordinary universe okay and so that is a form of warp drive that if i could make up this form of energy i could pull california closer cuz who needs all the stuff in the middle <laughs> i could st- just kidding i'm from chicago and then then i could step into la and then push it away again. It'd be so, kind of awesome. So
1: the warp in a warp drive is warping
2: space itself. Yes. So does this violate causality if you do this?
0: Well, it doesn't. It doesn't actually violate causality for the reasons that we were saying that I, you will never travel faster than a light beam will travel in that version of space-time or space-time contraction. So you're not traveling
1: faster than light. The space around you is contracting so that it makes you actually... It gives me a shorter distance to step across. So you would get there faster than light travel without ever traveling faster than light. Yes, and
0: in fact, we see this already. We know that some of the galaxies in our universe are technically moving away from us faster than the speed of light, but they're not moving away from us faster than a light beam is at the same location. And so, um, so it doesn't violate causality in that sense. But what it does violate is any rules on what we think are proper energetics for stuff in the universe. Okay. So it might require negative energies. And that's something that seems very unstable. If I have a negative energy, it seems like I can generate lots of positive energy just by taking the negative energy. You know how plus one and minus one is zero, well, I could have plus infinity and minus infinity and still make zero costs me. It seems to cost me nothing, in other words, to make an infinite amount of positive energy if I steal it from the negative energy. And that seems extremely unstable. So it might be that it's not actually physically viable is the bottom line. Sweet. <laughs> but if it is, somebody's going to profit from it. So it might as well be us. I'm, start- I'm CEO of this company as of now. Oh, and Thank just- you. Thank you, and just a really quick question. Um, I have a family member, and I'm sure everyone has one, who thinks that Earth is flat. What should I tell her? I don't have one of those. (laughs) Um. You should tell them to go up in a plane and look at the horizon. (laughs) Tell them to look at the Earth from the pictures of the space station.
1: Uh, honestly, you should just slap them.
0: <laughs> That's a much better suggestion.
2: Like whenever somebody says, the earth is... Shut up.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: so, <laughs> I want to do... A, this is something I'd love to do with a bunch of elementary schools. Is to redo the um, Aristarchus' experiment from 2,500 years ago. So Aristarchus is in Africa, in Alexandria... He waits. He goes to the longest day of the year. He measures the angle that the sun makes with, uh, and sees that it's like nine degrees, right? So the you can the earth. The, hold up a stick and it casts a shadow. The sun's never directly overhead. It's never directly overhead here in New York. It's just you know higher higher in the sky in the summer. Then he sent someone to the equator to make the same measurement. They counted the steps, it was a thousand štada, whatever that was, and the units that the Egyptians used. And they were actually able to measure the radius of the earth to about 5%. They did a remarkably good job just by measuring the angle the sun makes. Hmm. So you could do that experiment here. You could get a, you basically get someone in Chicago to measure how high the sun is today at the highest point. Someone in New Orleans, and the sun is higher in New Orleans than Chicago at the same time, I think my geography's good enough, right? they're right almost on top of each other, on the same line, mm-hmm. and you just measure from that the radius of the Earth and see the Earth is round. So that's the experiment to do, you know, that to, to do at home, besides getting do of the Earth. David, if you're or, not going to bring a picture. Or you
1: could show them a picture of the Earth. <laughs> that's what I was just going to say.
0: Okay, so is right.
2: everywhere. Okay, so, but I went to the website of the Flat Earth. There's a Flat Earth conference uh-huh. in North Carolina in November. No. Like People flying in for a conference talk about the Flat They're Earth.
0: They're flying on
2: a curve around <laughs> the Earth. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Right? And, yes, yes. Right? And so I, like, I go the way, and, I, and they had uh, you can find this, you can find everything on the web. So you go on the web, you like, I look this stuff up. <laughs> like, what do they say about these pictures? And they say, they're taken with curved lenses. <laughs> the pictures are fake. And the amazing thing is, they don't believe in Antarctica. Ugh. <laughs> well, these people just want attention. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, <laughs> how do you make a flat Earth work, right? Because I like, could go around it. Like, well, they, they say, actually, the Earth... Is it really looks like those maps you put up on the wall. So do which, you fall off the edge? No, so the edge is a big wall of ice. <laughs> and Antarctica isn't there. I'm not making this stuff up. This no. is what they
0: think. Wow. So what Man, happens I'm when you t- fly past Hawaii, you know, and you're going east? Or I guess in this case, you'd be going west around towards Japan. What happens? Well,
2: They, they, have this, they think there's this wall of Antarctica.
0: Has anyone flown over Hawaii to Japan? I have. I have. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, and I, then you can keep going. It's really weird. Past Japan, back to New York. There's a wall
2: Martin. there. A big, beautiful wall. My, <laughs> my, my son's going to Antarctica this winter. And we didn't even this, pay for it. I'm, I'm hoping it's there.
1: <laughs> so you. what do they say to this? Uh, when you look up in the sky at night, you see the moon. It is round. When you look at the sun in the day, it is round. It's when a circle. When you flat look at any circle. planet, oh, it's a round disk.
2: I don't know. Hey, d- 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 who saw the eclipse? Some of the eclipse? Yeah. yeah. Yeah? Yeah, absolutely. OK, you see the eclipse. There was this disk that moved across the sun and blocked it? Yeah. That was the Earth's shadow? Yes. Was that square? <laughs> or
1: rectangular? <laughs> a rectangular.
3: Um, Mara Archer from Washington Heights. So with the Voyager mission um, and the Voyager two going into another solar system, what implications does that have on the infinite finite universe theory and current research?
0: Well, I'll start this and then I'll give it to David who knows a lot more about the NASA missions. I was just going to say one of the things that I, the reason why I wanted to start this is because I love Voyager. And it's the first human-made object to break out of the sun's magnetic influence. It's actually just recently going interstellar. And that is absolutely an incredibly exciting phenomenon. But if you look at our solar system, in the scheme of the galaxy, it's puny, it's teeny tiny, and the next, traveling at its current speed, it won't reach another star system for 10,000 years or something like that. Like when people were upset that Voyager was, was had on it um, a kind of generalized symbolic map of where we were located in the galaxy, and people were really upset. Like, don't tell people where we are, or don't tell aliens, rather, where we are. Um, but if you, if you find Voyager, like the Earth's right there. It's really, it's right there. So, um, so <laughs> it, basically, it's, it's not in any way probing the scales of the size of the universe. Our galaxy is 100,000 light years across. And the next galaxy, you know, millions of light years away. There's galaxies billions of light years away. So, um, so we're nowhere near probing the proper extent of the universe with an object. We probe that. With light that's coming to us from from billions and billions of years ago, before there were human beings,
2: mm-hmm.
0: before there was metal, before stars had synthesized metal in their cores, um, we're receiving light. Yeah. Do you so, want to try that?
2: Sure. So what what we've been learning? Top
0: is, that, David. <laughs> well,
2: I can tell you a little bit about what we've been learning from Voyager lately, and that's so the sun is blowing out a wind, and we see this in the solar corona and explosions. In fact. If you look at the sun right now today If you still have those eclipse glasses You haven't thrown them out Go look at the sun You can actually see an ejector coming off the sun right now And that wind is uh, filling our solar system And that wind goes out And until it gets weaker and weaker Eventually it reaches a point where The wind from the sun Is weaker than the wind from other stars And That boundary we call the heliopause It's where the sun's magnetic energy no longer is important And what's been really fascinating and surprising And Voyager's been telling us things that we didn't expect Is we thought that would be a sharp edge And it's actually a much more complex structure And Voyager's been teaching us about how the plasma from our solar system Interacts with the plasma from the rest of the galaxy, and that—that's been the, the what it, you know. It first taught us all these things about the planets, and then move beyond the planets. And uh, in the last 20 years, it's been teaching us about the stuff out there. Cool.
0: Thank you. And let's take our our last question.
3: Um, John from Staten Island. Um, a little bit of a two-parter, but I'm always curious in meeting people uh, in terms of what they do. When was the first moment? A, when was the first moment that you were doing astrophysics that you thought to yourself, yes, this is why I do what I do? That kind of satisfaction for the climb up the mountain. And then two, Edward Frankel's book, Love and Math, he talks about the artistry of science. Where do you see yourself as an artist in what you do every day? I'll
0: um, take it offline. I'll try this, and then I'm sure David has thoughts about this too. But um, I can remember very distinctly learning special relativity. And um, when I finally understood this thing that I had heard a lot about, that two observers will measure the passage of time differently depending on their relative rates of motion, and um, and realizing, oh, yeah, somebody... An astro- I'm, I'm in empty space... And I see an astronaut float by, and it looks to me like his time is passing slowly. And I finally had that moment in special relativity where I realized, oh, he's floating in space, and I drift by from his perspective. (laughs) And he looks at me and says, oh, her time is passing more slowly. And when I finally saw how that worked on paper and the math, and this is why we're talking about the mathematics, I couldn't understand it before I understood the mathematics. And that was just like, like literally sit back, you know, a few minutes, let's pay some respect to that moment. That's what it felt like at the time learning that, and I think I learned that at three in the morning before my special relativity exam. (laughs) I was really good at cramming. and then the question about artistry, you know, I don't consider myself specifically a, a, an artist, a visual artist. I mean, I do think writing is a different kind of art, you know, and I do consider myself a writer. When I'm writing, I'm very concerned about the energy of the words and the rhythm and the exact word choice and the structure and this regular writerly stuff, you know. And, um, and it means the world to me to, to try to land that right. Um, but I do love living in a community of artists and that's what this experiment at Pioneer Works is about. We just built the science studios uh, and just opened them and um, with support of the Simons Foundation which is also supports David's Institute. And so it's interesting they're supporting these like radically different kinds of experiments in, in culture. But but to be in an institute that's mostly or began originally about the idea of bringing art and culture um, a, as often as possible free and open to the public space was really thrilling to me. It wasn't about doing art or being an artist. The scientists come there and they do science, but it was about living in a world that made more natural sense than having extreme silos, in my opinion. Living in kind of a bigger world or a more fluid fluid world, and it's a wonderful experiment. And I think we're still so deep in it that we don't fully understand it ourselves, how it's working, but we have, David's been there, we have these amazing scientists coming through, Nobel Prize winners, Richard Dawkins was there, and we have these, George Church, the geneticists, just incredible people, and um, so I'm just excited to see what happens. David?
2: Yeah, so, you know, Jana is one of these remarkable people who has succeeded both in being a creative artist and being a creative scientist. Thank you. Um,
0: we're gonna
2: hug later. <laughs> I've I've only worn one hat and been a scientist, but even just wearing that hat, one of the great things about being, I find about my job is that I get to be so many different things. Right? You are an educator. You're a communicator. You're you know creative, inventing new images. You're sort of a technician, solving problems, and you're using all those. Those different skills. Um, you know, these days, you know, I'm a manager and a leader, right, and other hats I wear. Uh, and the ability to do all that is really an exciting thing. Um, so that's, I guess, the second question. The first question, um, for me, the first time I realized I think I could be an astrophysicist um, was when Uh, I was an undergraduate and got to do work on a research project as a junior and came to my advisor and showed him what I had done. And he said, that was interesting. And that was, he said like, that's no one figured that out before. And realizing that like you figured something out that no one figured out before is just, even if it's just a little piece of the whole picture, is just a wonderful, exciting moment. Um, this is why, when we teach science, I think a mistake we make is we convey science as a series of facts that you need to totally learn agree. and memorize. Yeah,
0: totally agree.
2: But science for me is a process of discovery, and that's why I think it's so important to get um, students discovering stuff because that's what we do and that's the ex- what makes us all so exciting.
0: And, sorry, Chuck.
1: Oh, no, I was just going to say, for me, I just finished smoking some salvia
0: <laughs>
1: because it's not marijuana, and I didn't think it was like, going to alter me too much. And, uh, and the hat I was wearing was a skull cap, black, uh, with some skinny jeans because I was hanging with some guys from Brooklyn. And, uh, yeah, yeah.
0: So, on that note, do we have any last thoughts, parting thoughts, uh, that we want to share with the audience? Chuck?
1: I will just say that uh, it is, it's phenomenal that at a podcasting um, conference such as this, we have this many people coming out to listen, ask questions, and discuss uh, science and theoretical astrophysics. At that, I believe that there's a great uh, groundswell uh, in our nation right now that we are all a part of and that we should be very much aware of uh, that we are a part of this and promote science wherever we can, because um, I can say that where there is an absence of science, there is a proliferation of ignorance. Where there is a proliferation of ignorance, there is a danger of losing our society. And so we are part of a very important movement, and uh, and we should be proud to be so.
0: I want to give a hand to the audience for that. <laughs>
2: To follow up on that, I think of the slogan of the Washington Post, which is, democracy dies in the darkness. Mm -hmm. And science is part of a way of thinking about the universe that is reality-based, that says, you know, there really is a reality out there, there really is a truth out there, we talked about things like global warming where you just go out and you measure how much carbon dioxide there is in the atmosphere and it's going up. And one of the things that I think is really important about shows like this and our effort to convey the sort of stuff we're learning is that in a democracy, I think science is just an important part of one of the things we all need to know to be informed citizens making choices in the world we live in now.
0: Beautiful note. So, thank you all for coming. Thanks for listening to Star Talk All Stars. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you, David. I'm Janelleva. Until next time.
3: Bye.